Hi, everybody. Savannah Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Continuing our stroll through the hallowed halls of the Center for Immigration Studies, we are now talking to John Miano. He is a leading expert on the effect of foreign labor on technology workers and a fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. John is the co-author of the most excellent book and even more excellently titled Sold Out, How High-Tech Billionaires and Bipartisan, bipartisan Beltway Crap Weasels Are Screwing America's Best and brightest workers. John, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hey, great for having me, Steph. So the idea behind this uh, whole program, which, as you pointed out, started in, uh, I think, 1994, was that there was a massive desert wasteland of American talent, and the economy was going to collapse in on itself if if it wasn't propped up by endless hordes of foreign workers who alone had the skills that the American workforce was deficient in. Now, of course, anyone who knows anything about economics knows that a deficiency within a particular highly needed field will push wages up and draw more people into that field. So what kind of problem were they actually trying to solve and what kind of nonsense was being put forward to the American public? Well, it is a bunch of nonsense been put forward forward to the American public, because if you actually look at the statutes and completely ignore what Congress has said, just look what they put in the bill, the purpose of the H-1B program is to replace Americans with cheap foreign workers. That is what is in the statute. Congress has explicitly made it legal to replace Americans with foreign workers, under, except they, they haven't qualified that under certain conditions that will never occur, it's illegal. But in general, it's explicitly legal. And Congress has made it legal to pay H-1B workers the, quote, prevailing wage, which is which can be the 15th percentile. So in a place like Silicon Valley, you can easily save $40,000 a year on the H-1B program. So the initial idea was, uh, you know, um, the superstars of physics and, and uh, most excellent uh, writers who wanted to come and give lecture tours would be able to participate in the American uh, economy because of their once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-million kind of skill set. And it seems to have expanded at the point now that you're talking about the sort of 15th percentile. It seems to have kind of expanded downward and pushed. I don't know, what are the estimates of, I know it's really tough to gauge, but what are the estimates of how many middle-class skilled American workers have been pushed to the sidelines through this program? Well, it would probably be about 800,000 workers. That's the number that's on in the H1, probably on the H-1B program right now. And when you talk about high-skilled, what's, what's kind of funny about the H-1B program is that Congress has said set up a skill-based prevailing wage system for the H-1B program. It has four tiers, and the employer picks the skill of the worker and then has to pay a corresponding prevailing wage. Now, you hear the employers claiming that they need all these really high-skilled workers, but when they use the skill-based prevailing wage system, they classify the majority of these workers at the bottom skill level, where the prevailing wage is the 17th percentile. And only a small fraction of H-1B workers are at a skill that commands an average wage. Right. Now, the libertarian part of me um, would, would say the following, and I, I think there are some good rebuttals, but I'll leave it to, to your discretion. The libertarian part of me says, hey, man, it's just free trade. It's, you know, if you can't compete, if people are willing to do your work for less, then, you know, you got to retrain in something else. This is just how the market works. You know, if people can underbid you, so be it. Uh, I mean, and what is the response to that from, uh, from your perspective? Well, there is no such thing as free trade. Um, so look, the counterexample for me is how come then um, the members of the public can't go to a South Sea island 
set up a CD um, stamping plant, and then import copies of Microsoft Word legally created in that island. You know, Microsoft wants to have protections on their intellectual property. They don't want free open borders on, um, on intellectual property, but they want open borders on labor. And I mean, the reality is there isn't going to be completely open borders in the libertarian sense. Right, right. And also, I mean, um, the social costs of uh, all of this stuff tends to be offloaded to others. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of some things like the healthcare costs for people who come in. If they have lower wages, they're less able to afford it. And uh, I've certainly heard arguments that uh, immigration, particularly illegal immigration, uh, has something to do with driving uh, Obamacare. And of course, if people lose their jobs, the social costs of their unemployment insurance, sometimes of their retraining, are borne by society as a whole, uh, not by the companies who are making the transition. That's true. And, you know, the great thing about tech workers here being affected by H-1B is that their uh, salaries have been flat for uh, since not around 1990 when the H-1B program started, uh, which puts them ahead of everyone else who's seen declining wages in this, in this country. And, I mean, a large part of that is due to our immigration policies. That noted that, I mean, like if you're an a A1 top computer programmer, um, you know, you can get around can get around the H-1B program to some extent because I said they're importing low-wage workers. But the reality is most American computer programmers are average, and they're the ones facing the competition from the H-1B workers. So if 800,000 middle-class American workers have been pushed out of the workforce, or at least pushed out of this sector of the workforce, I got to tell you, John, it's, it seems like a bit of a tough sell for a politician to say, hey, vote for me, and, you know, maybe the price of your software will go down a little, but you'll be able to buy it with precisely zero salary because you'll be out of a job. So it was sold, of course, as uh, to augment, you know, as immigration always is. It's going to make us all wealthier and, and, and better, and, and it's going to be excellent. And, and no Americans are going to be pushed out of the workforce. That was one of the provisions in the earlier approach. How did that manage to crumble so spectacularly? Well, one of the things that you should keep in mind is that this this episode, this story, has largely been censored by the media. Okay? It's completely politically incorrect because the story the media wants to tell is that immigrants don't take jobs, they create jobs. And so over the past um, 27 years of this program, as America has been replaced, um, the response of the media has been to ignore them, ignore these episodes. Um, you wouldn't see that. Um, you wouldn't see these stories covered unless you read the um, computer trade press. If you read Computer World, you'd know about it. If you read the Indian Press, you'd know about it. If you read the Washington Post, you wouldn't have a clue that Americans are being replaced by foreign workers. Uh, what's inexplicably happened in the past couple of years is that there have been reports on this. Um, so, for example, the New York Times reported on Disney, and the um, Los Angeles Times reported on. Um, Southern California Edison. So some national outlets have reported that so people are starting to realize what's going on. And because politicians had that cover, they didn't have to take a position on this issue. So if we go back, Donald Trump was the very first presidential candidate um, to say that he was opposed to replacing Americans with foreign workers. Right? I mean, if you go back there, um, fortunately in this election cycle, we had actually had Bernie Sanders agreed with him on that. Um, uh, Ted Cruz agreed with him on that, and um, and then was one one other. Hmm. Well, anyway, I forgot. I believe in one one good one kid, good candidate uh, agreed with that. But um, they won't. But in the past, 
when the politicians were on the other side, they had complete cover because the other guys on the other side. So in this election, we had Donald Trump saying he's against replacing Americans with foreign workers, and we had Hillary Clinton, who was promising more foreign replacements. So there was a clear choice for the American voters. And now, I mean, I think some of these politicians are going to start feeling the heat as people find out about this. Let's uh, personalize this uh, a little bit. And yes, I mean, I don't imagine that ABC owned by Disney is going to talk about how Disney forced its own workers to dig their own graves and train their own replacements under threat of not getting, or at least a subtle threat, or maybe even not so subtle threat of not getting their uh, separation benefits. But um, uh, AIG seems to me one of the most powerful stories around this because it is full loop crony capitalism at its finest. Uh, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about what happened at AIG. Well, AIG was actually the first company to replace large numbers of American workers, and this occurred in 1994. So we're talking here 23 years where America has been replaced by foreign workers and Congress has done absolutely nothing to stop it. Um, What AIG did is they summoned um, their um, entire computer programming staff to a hotel and directed them to two rooms. If you went to one room, you were told you're being fired and we're going to be replaced by uh, foreign workers and would have to train your place at correct severance. If you went to the smaller room, you were told you were going to be able to hang around. And AIG, what they did is they hired a company called Sintel, um, which is basically is a company that's in the business of importing H-1B workers in the United States. And at that time, it was an early, early practice. We hadn't really seen this. And so the AIG workers, the American AIG workers went out, and then the Sintel workers came back in. Um, I was a computer programmer at the time, and um, I actually was able to work at AIG after this happened. And fortunately, this uh, turned out to be a giant disaster for AIG because the, these um, high-skilled programmers turned out to be completely incompetent. There was a little bit of uh, a little bit of payback in that in that story. Well, and they ended up uh, receiving one of the largest bailouts. In uh, corporate history, I can't remember the number because I generally read it and then pass out uh, thinking of the American taxpayer. Do, do you remember how much money did they get from the government when this all hit the fan? No, I, I don't remember. You know, I, I thought that was greatly ironic, you know, seeing that because seeing them getting getting bailed out like that. And, you know, from what I saw at AIGA, AIG, uh, it, was, it was no surprise that they would need a bailout. <laughs> I mean, I spent, I guess, about 15 years or so in the uh, as a programmer and um, as a chief technical officer uh, in, in the IT world. And the giant Grand Canyon of understanding between those who understand the technology and its ecosystem interrelated complexity where you have systems interacting with each other, millions of lines of code. You don't just replace people. Like, you just, oh, well, you've been working on this system for 10 years. You know all the quirks. You know all the insides and outsides. You know where it touches on everything else, what a delicate system it is. I mean, my first job as a programmer was working with COBOL 74 on a trading system that had been built, you know, years and years and years before that was incredibly complicated. And you, you couldn't touch that without 16 different levels of QA and, you know, all of the experience guys pouring over it. So the idea, I guess people go to the management and say, well, you can save money on these programmers by bringing in these other people from, you know, the general Indian or third world diploma mills and who knows how good they are because they're just typing. You know, it's only only a bunch of key, keys on a keyboard. They'll just be different typists. So it doesn't really matter. But it really does matter how competent, how skilled and how experienced programmers are. And this replacement gave them a short-term stock boost, but I would argue that in the long run, it has given them a significant competitive disadvantage. Yes, I, I always hear from back afterwards 
that these um, outsourcings turn out to be giant disasters. Because as you described, that you know, in computer programming, there's a wide range of skills. You know, you get you know, a typical computer project. You know, you have six people, and one person does half the work. Now, if you replace that one person with a with a average person, then you're you're being cut back. And what we have in the industry is we have the fundamental problem is software development costs are too expensive. Okay, that everyone knows that software projects fail. Okay, software. Pro and you know, as engineers, you, have, you and I probably know why these things occur, why software is too expensive, why projects fail. But the accountants don't. They don't appreciate you know, the amount of time a programmer um, sits in front of the computer waiting for a program to compile and that a faster computer would, would um, alleviate it. They don't know about you know, how um, more efficient office space you know, that cuts out noise would boost product productivity. These things are completely alien. The accountant goes out and sees, well, I can save $10 an hour hiring an Indian programmer. Let's just do it. And these decisions are made by accountants, not by people who are uh, working to improve the system. Well, and of course, uh, the accountant doesn't see what I found to be the biggest challenge uh, in developing software, which was uh, scope creep. In, in other uh -huh. words, uh, allowing salespeople to talk to the customers from, you know, we were always in the, in the tech, in the tech dungeon. You know, it's like, Oh no, a salesperson is on the phone with the customer. Oh no, <laughs> what this bye bye weekend, bye bye summer, bye bye sunshine. Uh, I'm not going to go out into the big blue room and meet the flesh people for quite some time because promises are being made. And the scope uh, creep uh, is a huge issue. You know, there's studies and studies that show that if you solve a problem in the design phase, it's nine times cheaper than solving it later. So if there's a structural problem where you have tech illiterate salespeople talking to greedy customers promising the moon so they can get their commission, bringing in Indian programmers or, or any programmers uh, is not going to solve the problem because the problem is structural. It's not hourly. I'll tell you, if, if we're, as we're talking tech, I'll be a funny part of it. I, I worked on a uh, system that was, that was a Microsoft Windows-based system written in, um, written in Pascal that was slow. And the reason it was slow was that the uh, that the queries had been written poorly. That rather than joining tables, they were doing nested queries. So rather than doing one query joining tables, they would do a million queries, literally nested tables. And not, and not taking advantage of any uh, indexing, usually or or keys or anything like that. Okay, so we have that problem, and so we we were I was working on fixing that problem at the time, and then someone in the accountants, um, somebody up high. Came up with a solution to the problem. Um, they would hire um, an Indian outsourcing company to rewrite the program in Java. So they rewrote the program in Java, keeping all the queries exactly the same, and it was even slower. Well, sure. I mean, Java is has to run in a sandbox as an interpreted interpreted language, and therefore it's going anyway. We, we we won't geek out too much, but yeah, I mean, this is the kind of decisions that people who and this this gap is a huge. It's a big cultural problem. It's a big business problem, and there needs to be ways to solve it. But um, this addiction for for sort of short term profitability. I mean, my general theory, I call it the super supercharged stock market, which is that the government forces so much people to throw their money into the stock market where they don't really want to be there but it's either invest it or you have to pay it in taxes you know i'm thinking sort of um, retirement savings plans and other sort of tax maneuvers so there's way too much money sloshing around in the stock market looking for way too little profitability and so people have this very short-term thinking you know over the next quarter you know if i if everyone assumes everything's going to be the same but i've cut my payroll by x percentage points then everyone's going to think that on the other end these magic bales of golden profits are going to come kicking out the combine harvester 
but of course it's not that way um and the systems that are built by less competent programmers it's not only like they're not as good as i mean because you actually they they end up having they give information that that enables business executives to make bad decisions and coming in and fixing it you have to analyze the whole mess, see if it can even be fixed, and starting it from scratch uh, is incredibly expensive. So when it drifts, uh, it's like shooting a movie where where the camera is increasingly going out of focus. You know, what do you have to reshoot? What can you fix? I mean, it's a huge mess. I worked as a lawyer. I was working at a, a company just a few years ago uh, where they had one comp- where everything was was offshore to India for development, and the Indians just write uh, would write spaghetti code. And one component had to be rewritten 15 times because every time they wanted to make a change, the people going back couldn't um, do anything with existing code, and so it had to be rewritten. And the same same piece of software, and it wasn't all that large, was rewritten 15 times. Um, just for those who don't know, that, and this is it's important to know if you have any money in the stock market or in some tech companies. So if you break your code into modules, it's easier to understand. If you comment the code, if you use common sense variable names, if you if you document it well, you know, I mean, it's it's software is like ninety percent design and ten percent typing if you're doing it right. But if you just go in and make it work, well, okay, you can make it work, but it's you know it's duct tape and spit uh, on your engine wing. Uh, it's usually not long till you have a spiral. Well, people. It- People in outside the industry don't appreciate, but the state of the computer industry and software development industry right now is if it were analogous to the civil engineering industry, be one where two thirds of the buildings fall down after they're constructed, (laughs) and that means that's not really not an exaggeration. You know, at the worst, you know, in the old days when they're building the cathedrals and they did them entirely by uh, without calculus, entirely by instinct. You know, they did have a few cathedrals fall down, like Ely and Beauvais, what came crashing down. But most of them stayed up. The so the medieval med, medieval um, cathedral builders are were uh, more efficient than than the current software developers are. Right. And you know, if it would be if, if the problem is we can't visualize it. You know, if a building falling down in Manhattan, you can you could you know could see that, or you know, and or a, you know, twenty million dollar building in a um, suburb in a suburb crashing down. You can you can visualize that, but in software, um, when these disasters happen and they're multi-million-dollar disasters, no one sees them, and everyone is rushing to cover them up. Right, and of course, since and again, it's not always the case, but I think in general, in my experience, uh, the problem had to do with uh, poor specifications, unrealistic expectations, uh, or changes in in requirements. You know, you you can't you can't be changing the plane when it's taking off. You know, you kind of have to do that design part before it's leaving the ground. And of course, it's a lot easier for the business managers to say, well, the cost overruns occurred at the programmer salary level rather than at the executive design level or the executive project management level because then they get to blame others, keep their bonuses, uh, and pretend that the problem is with the typists and not the designers. For the people who might know, usually when a project is going to be a disaster, the programmers know about it well in advance. (laughs) And they raise warnings. And the term they use for it is a death march. (laughs) And, And... a death march project, and we, you know, in the H, you know, if you bring this back to H one, if if we were actually through the H one B program, we're improving America, improving productivity. I'd be jumping up, you know, in, in favor. You know, it's very hard to find, you know, top one percent programmers, but we're not dealing with top one percent programmers. We're dealing with bottom one third programmers, 
and you know America has America as as every country has a surplus of bottom one third programmers. Right. And you know, and we might as well you know be using those positions for our own people. And um, and the other thing is, if if we didn't have the H one B program, I mean, I my thought was that the industry would correct itself and become more efficient. And you know, it just hasn't. I mean, you know, that's one of the great tragedies. I think you know, looking at software development is it, it hasn't improved in the past um, 20, 30 years. So let's talk about this myth of the high-skilled worker shortage that was used to sell uh, this uh, initial idea to the American public uh, before it generally got covered up through corporate media <laughs> hiding it. Um, what were the arguments against the idea that there was this dearth of, of STEM technology, technological expertise in America? Well, the, I mean, they were mainly the economic argument that you said, okay, so that the um, – you know, we would expect salaries to be rise. Um, you know, how can we have all these Americans uh, in technology fields who can't find jobs? How come the number of engineers has been, is declining as we lose manufacturing? How can we have this huge glut of people in the life sciences? Those were the, you know, the empirical data, and, and we had the unemployment data as well. That, that went up against the industry lobby, which the industry had used studies um, about unfilled jobs. They would claim that there were 200,000 unfilled jobs. They would claim there were 700,000 unfilled jobs. And the reality is you can say any number of jobs are unfilled. I mean, every corporation has um, jobs in their org chart that aren't, that no one's even attempting to fill, attempting to fill. And so these, they were just spouting these numbers left and right, you know, like the, uh, like in um, the Manchurian candidate where the Senator talks about the number of communists and he just throws out a number every time. The tech lobby was was doing that, just throwing numbers out. And oh, don't get me started on McCarthyism. I just did a whole presentation on that, so let's step aside that one because some of those numbers were good. But yeah, it's, well, it's sort of like saying, you know, well, there are there are women out there who don't have boyfriends, so let's import a bunch of men. Uh, that's yeah. you know not necessarily going to solve the problem. Well, that, but you see, these are just being numbers thrown thrown out. Um, just like I said, just like in the in the, in the movie that were completely inconsistent. But the only reason they do these is to provide the politicians cover. You know, this whole industry of writing studies in Washington to provide uh, provide cover, and you can get any answer you want on any on anything. And then you'll see these politicians parroting figures. I mean, I remember John McCain talking about how each H one B visa creates ten jobs for an American. You know that he's been fed by fed by someone. Um, so these are. So they have, so they're armed with these figures that they can get, and they're not doing any objective analysis. Meanwhile, these same people, um, you know, along uh, along with these figures, comes Mr. Green in boatloads. Well, and also, didn't Obama recently change it so that the people coming over could uh, bring uh, spouses as well? Uh, are those spouses allowed to work and compete with Americans? Uh, they they aren't generally. They had, but. He changed the rule to allow certain spouses, if they'd apply for green cards, to uh, to work as well. Now, this everyone knew was just a um, precursor to expanding it to everyone. So, what they what what they would do in Washington with regulations like that is you make it to a narrow group of people. You know, like here in this case, it was to spouses of green cards, and you'd say, you know, so if it gets challenged, you say, you know, it's only pe only a small number of people who are getting. Um, who are already in the pipeline for immigration, and then when they then 
the industry lobby wants to be able to expand it to everyone so they can get a twofer on the H-1B visa. So when that would happen, then if someone challenged it, then the government would say, oh, we've been doing this for years. It's just expanding an existing program that's perfectly legal. So sometimes the slippery slope argument is not invalid, the thin edge of the wedge stuff. Now, the other, I guess, the other pushback, let me know what you think, the other pushback that occurred to me about this sort of free market argument is um, – Aren't they kind of chained to their desks? Like the H-1B people, I mean, uh, do they? can they just sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to go and bid myself out to the highest guy, go across the street and so on. To me, it's not really a free trade argument uh, if, you know, the, the um, social costs are, are borne by the taxpayers of the displacement, uh, if it's not honestly presented to the American public and the American voter. And also, if you basically get tech serfs. Uh, who who come in and are sort of as the old medieval serfs were tied to the land, they're kind of tied to the job. Uh, that is not a very free market environment. I think it goes beyond chain to the desk. It's more like boot to the throat. Yeah, that the uh, that the system is designed to keep the worker chained, as you're as you're describing. For example, uh, in 1998, Congress changed the law to allow employers to charge a penalty. I mean, not a penalty. A, a liquidated damages is the technical term. It's, it can't be a penalty. It has to be li- called liquidated damages if the worker quits. So you go out there and you put a contract that says that, that um, you come here on H-1B visa and if you quit, um, you're going to have to pay the employer $30,000. And then maybe you go enforce that in an Indian court, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, then the other thing they used to chain it is this whole green card, the green card system. Um, that prior to uh, 1990, if you were in the H category, this is before the actual H-1B, there was an earlier H visa, um, the H category was strictly non-immigrant. So that meant that there wasn't a path from an H visa um, to a green card. There were some ways of getting around it, but it wasn't open that you could go come here on an H visa and then get a, get a green card. So then they changed that in 1990 to allow these to allow H-1B workers to apply for green cards. Now, it's probably, but they, in green cards, there are 144,000 a year, but because of our system of diversity, um, no country can get more than 7%, which is roughly um, 10,000 green cards a year. Now, we get about 80,000 people a year from India on H-1B visas, and we tell them to apply for 10,000 green cards. So that creates backlogs. Now, that was something that we, that I think an engineer would have predicted, but remember, these are, these laws are written by lawyers. The engineer would see if you say, if you allow 80,000 people to apply 10,000 green cards, you're going to get a backlog. Um, then in the, I think it was 2004, Congress changed, Congress seeing this huge backlog, it was now so, for India, it was so long that people would fall off the end of the H-1B six years and wouldn't get, wouldn't get the green card. So now, so Congress then changed the law to allow people to stay in the United States in H-1B status once their green card petition was going, which then has the effect of making the backlog even longer. So now the backlog, I believe, is 12 years for India to get a, get a, get a green card. Uh, and then right, the, the talked about solution for this um, is to, to eliminate these per country quotas, which would then have the Indian problem flow to the entire immigration system and turn it into a total total disaster. So one of the pro- things the public you know, probably doesn't perceive is you know, the people writing these bills are lawyers who benefit from chaos, not engineers who are trying to make a rational system. 
<laughs> well, as a non-engineer, even I can tell that that's going to lead to uh, to a backlog. Now, as far as solutions go, uh, this uh, is a challenge. Uh, Congress, uh, you know, I've always said, and other people have said too, that congressmen should come with like corporate logos on them, you know, like like NASCAR cars, so you know exactly who's running their particular uh, agenda. And I, thankfully, of course, President Trump is uh, outside to a large degree that whole. Um, bought and sold uh, soulless marketplace. But um, what can he do? Uh, because, of course, at the moment he tries to do anything, all the immigration lawyers who are feasting off the complexity of this system are going to file suit uh, against him. What are his options if he wants to start bringing this uh, under some kind of control? Well, he actually has a large number of things that, in theory, he can do. As you, as you point out, the court problem um, the courts obviously do not like Donald Trump. The same Ninth Circuit that said Obama can do absolutely whatever he wants says that President um, Trump can't do what is explicitly authorized in the statute. So that is an obvious problem for him. But if we talk about the law as it's actually printed, not how it might um, um, occur with judicial activism, uh, the first thing is that there are, there are certain interpretive things that he can do. So currently, um, there's an H-1B lottery given out every year because there's so many H-1B p- petitions. I mean, there's so much demand for this cheap labor. Um, they use the um, entire quota up on the first day. The law says the first day the visas are available. The law says that, the, the, that um, these visas are supposed to be processed in order received. Okay? Um, but when you have 200,000 visa petitions, arrive at multiple locations around the country on the same day, there's no way you can do um, do these in order. So as a matter of interpretation, um, the uh, uh, USCIS for year for past few years has had a random lottery where they just pick pick out of pick out of them. Uh, that is entirely a, an issue of interpretation. There's no regulation. That's just what they do. Uh, one of the things that's been suggested is that Trump changed that to a system that uh, is wage-based or skill-based. As we said, that there, um, there are these skill-level classifications in the H-1B system. One way would be, would be to have a first-time lottery at the highest skill level. If there are any left, move down to the next skill level. And if there are any left, move down to the next level. And if there are any left, you go to the fourth, fourth skill level. Um, that he could do unilaterally and just, just announce. Um, you know, there have been threats of lawsuits against that. Of course, one of the things Donald Trump could do is if it got blocked, he could just not hand out the visas. So he uh, could basically just put the whole program on hold until the courts were to untangle this kind of issue, which would be uh, several times around the sun, I would assume. Yeah, which could take three, four years. I, I have one court case that's been going on for 10 years on a similar regulation. So uh, that would be one of his alternatives if, if he gets, um, gets a lawsuit. Such that action would have would have a slight impact in wages because H one B wages are so low anyway that basically that would cut out the people in the range from from the seventeenth percentile to the thirty fourth percentile um, and you then you'd have um, the fight for visas would be in the thirty fourth to fiftieth percentile still below still below average so that's unilateral type stuff he could also do regulations for example one of the things uh, is that the duration of an H-1B visa is set by regulation. Um, Congress says that it can be a maximum of six years, um, and that's it. Um, through interpretation, they've made it three years with one renewal. Um, through, they could change the regulations to say it's only one, 
one set of three years, no renewal, or even make it one year or two years. So that's an opportunity for him. Now, how, how dependent John, have tech companies in America become on this program? Because remember, yeah, everyone who gets information uh, on the web, and, and of course, even on TV, right? I mean, TV is owned by a lot of companies that uh, are not tech-specific, like like Disney and so on, that have taken advantage of this program at the expense of the American worker. So the information that's flowing towards you is coming from corporate entities that may be heavily invested in the continuance of this program and have a big incentive to keep good information from you. And and one of the things I was thinking about, I don't know if you've got any information on this, but I was thinking like, so I was um, uh, chief technical officer, head of research, and I had a very, very high-strung, creative, brilliant research team that I was kind of wrangling like a bunch of cocaine-addicted cats trying to get them all to go in the same direction. They weren't actually addicted to anything. It's just an analogy. <laughs> But I mean, and a great, fun, exciting group of people to work for. Now, if somebody had said to me at some point, hey, Steph, I got a great idea. Why don't you go and manage these people who are not legally allowed or really practically allowed to leave their jobs? I would have been like, ew, no, thanks. I don't want to be like a tyrant. I don't want to be like some medieval lord with his serfs. I mean, I think that maybe the corporate culture has adapted itself over the last 20, 25 years to the point where... The managers just don't – maybe they don't even have the skills to manage people who have the option to leaving. I mean they've really invested and I think the corporate culture may have even wrapped around this um, quasi-medieval work environment. Well, one of the things that's changed is the, uh, is the quick riches. I mean probably when we started the, this, uh, this, I mean there was no such thing as a company like Facebook going from nothing to billions of dollars in value in you know a very, very short period of time. Company – Companies built up. I mean, you, you generally didn't even go public until your company was was prof, profitable. And so we, the leaders had a different mindset. I mean, when I, I worked at Digital Equipment, and the president was Ken Olson. Uh, you know, Ken Olson was famous for his prayer breakfasts, breakfasts, and that kind kind of thing. And then we shifted uh, over the years to uh, CEOs who became notorious for their arrests for speeding in their um, in their fancy cars. And we don't have the same um, – the, the people who were leading the companies when, when I started in the 80s uh, had a completely different mindset. They were more like the slow and steady wins the race, built foundations, built each level carefully uh, rather than this uh, – the, 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 the horse, the, the, the sort of the hare racing around the landscape and then getting, getting lost. You know, it's a different, a different, moral, different set, of, set of morality. I mean, the, I mean, the thought – I mean, there are people who um, it would be an alien concept for them to do what you're describing, you know, not to manage people who are uh, who operate as serfs. But we're developing that culture in this country. I mean, I, and you know, can see it see it all around. It's it's I think uh, a part of the coarsening of America. Um, it was acceptable. So, what do you think these tech companies um, and other companies dependent on this? Um, how invested are they, do you think, in this, and how close to the wall are they going to get in fighting against it? Well, the um, some company. I mean, it depends on what the company is. Now, for example, if you're if you're one of these um, if you're one of the service companies in the business of selling H-1B workers, and that would include a company like IBM, but also is Indian companies and um, the um, accounting companies that got into technology co- consulting. Um, this would be a major hit. Okay, they're the they're the big ones. Uh, the other business that also would take a hit is the immigration lawyers. 
is that the H-1B program created the business of immigration lawyer. Uh, you know, prior to 1990, there weren't very many immigration lawyers in this country, and they've, um, they've exploded, and they've become a power, powerful force. As far as the actual, you know, high-tech companies like, you know, um, like Microsoft and that, I mean, it'll be an irritant, but I don't think it's going to, uh, wouldn't be uh, serious. But on the other hand, the political fight, uh, they, the tech industry fights on H-1B like the NRA fights on guns. <laughs> give, you know, give no quarter. I mean, I mean it's, a good, it's a good strategy, but you, know, you have to recognize that's how, that's how they fight. Um, and I mean, even you know, basic provisions like you can't place an American with a, a foreign worker, they fought to, fought to keep out of the law. Right? So, that, so they're gonna fight hard. Uh, one thing against them, though, I'll say, is that I mean, I think they completely alienated President Trump. I mean, he owns Trump own, owes them absolutely nothing here. So I think through regulation, um, I think they have a hard time actually blocking anything that he does through regulation. On the other hand, in Congress, um, you know, you know, we talk, you, you talk about the Congress. If you, if you go into go into Washington and and set and refer to the senator from Microsoft or the senator from Goldman Sachs. People know who you're talking about, and and so um, Trump's if Trump's going to do this through um, legislation. His biggest challenge is going to be um, the Republicans who are completely in the tank with the, with the tech industry. Well, I you know I always hesitate to sort of step into political strategy, but the way I would do it is you know if, if tech companies fought me on this, I'd simply take the fight to the social media. I'd take the fight to to Twitter, I'd take the fight to Facebook, I'd take the fight wherever I could, and then say, well, these guys are fighting a law uh, that, or finding a change in law that would be beneficial to America uh, and American workers. And, uh, you know, what what do you think of that, consumers? Uh, and I think you'd have to weigh it to the point where they'd say, okay, well, you know, we're losing enough customers, we're getting enough negative press through this, that we're going to have to back out of this fight. Well, I mean, President Trump could, could praise exactly what you're saying very, very simply. Uh, Senator, your senator supports replacing Americans with foreign workers, you know, and, you know, that's not that kind of thing um, clearly stated um, will not go well. And one of the things, you know, big changes here um, is, is that Trump has the ability of getting publicity for this if he choose, chooses to do it. And the industry and the politicians have relied on a lack of publicity that no one knew that this was going on, you know. Uh, pe when when people hear that Americans are being placed by foreign workers, they they usually say, "Well, don't you have to find? Don't you have to show you couldn't find an American before you got a foreign worker?" No, and people don't know that. So Trump can come bring that um, to the forefront. You know, and if you're a company that does one of these massive outsourcings, you know, your CEO might get a call from President Trump. You know, uh, one of the things I, I that you know the bad publicity that people don't think about is you know Disney. Um, was the company that brought this to the forefront, okay? and this was done by Disney Resorts, and it happened. I believe it was uh, the it was I mean, get the year right, but I think it was the end of 2014 when this occurred. Went to two, I mean, maybe it was the end of 2014, 2015. Um, it it took place, and then um, it got reported in the computer trade press, and there was absolute silence everywhere. Um, even uh, this, even there was very marginal coverage, even locally. And in, then, shortly thereafter, the head of Disney Resorts was promoted and was tapped to be this, the new CEO. And then 
the, then the New York Times broke the story about six months later, and all hell broke loose. And since then, the um, the uh, new uh, newly appointed potential CEO um, was forced to leave the com company. And I understand that the CIO who made the decision also has been forced to leave the co leave the company. Um, so you know, Trump has can affect this by you know giving um, bad publicity to companies that do this. Well, let's hope that a combination of uh, awareness and potential consumer reactions to this kind of behavior will help the companies make better decisions. I think that the immigration lawyers may be beyond hope as a whole, but uh, hopefully we can help them influence that, get a couple of hundred thousand eyeballs on this conversation and get the information out there because this is part of the hidden cohort that helped bring Trump to power. Uh, and again, it's not admitted or acknowledged by the left uh, in general, but it is a very, and some elements of the right who are in the pocket of these corporations. But it's a very, very important um, group of people who are very well educated, very articulate, very intelligent, and very motivated to get a better life. So, John, thanks so much for uh, taking the time today. Please want to remind people, check out cis.org slash Miano, M-I-A-N-O. We'll put a link to the very well-written um, uh, book uh, and very entertaining and very enlightening, sometimes enraging, Sold Out. There we go. It's right there. Sold Out. How high-tech billionaires and bipartisan beltway crap weasels are screwing America's best and brightest workers. Thank Thanks for all your work. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Have yourself a great day. Thank you, Steph.